fans. And turn with me to three places. First Samuel chapter 2, Psalm 130, I know I'm asking a lot here, and Matthew chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we'll start there, then Psalm 130, and then Matthew chapter 1. This is not an Old and New Testament survey class all wrapped into one, but we're going to get a couple of verses in here. How many of you have ever heard of Hannah in the Old Testament? Yeah. She was the mother of a prophet named Samuel. He was a prophet, he was a judge, he was the last before the king started, before King Saul came along. She couldn't have children, but when she did have a child, she rejoiced because God had miraculously given her a child. And, but she prays a prayer that you may have overlooked that is messianic. Now, when we say messianic, we mean it, it points to the Savior, it points to whenever you see the word Messiah... It's synonymous, the Messiah is the Hebrew word for the Greek word, which is Christ. And it means anointed. So the anointed one. Now, there's been many anointed people in the Bible, but there's only one anointed one, capital one, and that being God's only begotten son. So Hannah has this uh, prayer that's actually kind of a mini message, if you will, and a worship all, all rolled into one. But just, we, can't, we don't have time to read the whole thing. But we can read verse 1 in First Samuel chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies. That could be a sermon in and of itself. We'll look at the end of this prayer. Look at verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. And this is going way to the end of the Messianic work in the kingdom of Jesus at the end. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. Now this is speaking of Jesus' coming when he comes and rules and reigns in righteousness. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of, here it is, his anointed. His anointed. Turn with me to Psalm 130. So we have this messianic prayer of Hannah, looking to someone that she was expecting, but wasn't on the scene yet. And we see the same in Psalm 130. It's a great psalm if you're going through something in your life to take this psalm and pray it back to the Lord. But in Israel, they used to sing it. And the great thing about singing things is you can worship and pray at the same time. These worship songs we just sang, you can make them a prayer because sometimes you're so worked up you can't even think. And the Psalms will do the thinking for you because they're actually pure thoughts, aren't they? And so this prayer was actually a song. You see it listed as the Song of Ascents, all of these passages, chapters before and Right after it are these Song of Ascents, and I'll talk about what that is in just a minute. But look at uh, verse, starting with verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. 
and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. And in fact, this passage, a lot of Bible scholars believe that this is speaking of shepherds, because shepherds had to watch all night. And the nights were long, guarding from wolves and uh, guarding from things, and it was cold and it was damp. And, and interestingly enough, Jesus comes on a night when who is told? Shepherds. So right here in this little psalm, many Bible scholars believe this is always meant to speak of shepherds on watch. Shepherds on watch. More than those who watch for the morning. Yes, than those who watch for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope. There it is, that word hope. In the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. We've been talking a lot about mercy lately. We don't want the fairness of God, but we desperately need the mercy of God. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. A complete redeeming, exchanging what we deserve for something else, something better. Our debt's been paid. With him is uh, abundant redemption. For he and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. A lot of times Israel thought they had other needs, but the real need was iniquity. So that takes us to Matthew chapter 1. Hope, redemption, anointed, redeemed from iniquities. And in Matthew chapter 1, we'll pick it up with verse 17. Uh, verses 1 through 17 is a genealogy. You might kind of pass over them sometimes, but we're not going to pass over it today. I'm going to show a couple of things related to this genealogy that hopefully encourages you about what God has been working on before time began. And these genealogies are rather important to what the Lord was foretelling, but then what was revealed with the coming of Jesus. But let's pick it up with verse 17. And then right after that, we have an angel appears to Joseph. And a good thing, because Joseph would have been really really a mess if an angel hadn't explained what was going on. We know how that story goes. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the captivity of Babylon are 14 generations. Now this will cover... We just read about Hannah. She's in there. We just read from Psalm 130. That's in there. All that is in this time frame. Fourteen generations from the captivity of Babylon until the Christ. And that word means anointed again. We see that the Bible, all woven together, are 14 generations. So 14, 14, and 14. From Abraham to David to the Babylonian captivity, then to Christ. Those are your kind of junctures that God marks as these are the pivot points of these 14 generations. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, and this is where Joseph says, hey, there's a problem here. Before they came together, she was found with child. But the good news are at the end of the verse, of the Holy Spirit. Not some other man in Galilee. Mary didn't do something that would have caused Joseph embarrassment or, or any kind of sin issue. But the Holy Spirit's come upon her, but he, of course, didn't know that at the time. In verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. He said, I'm going to do the best honorable thing I can do. She is pregnant. I don't know how this happened. 
best I can do is spare her life, make sure she's not stoned or anything else or, or, or ostracized. And there was a, a range of things that could have happened. She would have not necessarily been stoned, but that certainly was within the range of possibilities. But he said, I'm going to do the best I can. But while he thought about these things, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Aren't you glad that when you really need answers, God has answers? When you really need hope, God has hope. But when you don't know what's going on, God knows what's going on. Amen? And so he steps in. The angel steps in and says, Joseph, son of David. There's the genealogies again. Joseph's like, I'm not directly a son of David, but he is in the David lineage. Do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, even the shepherds will be told, do not be afraid. This is a constant theme in the Bible. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Jesus has come to cast these things out. Take Mary to be your wife, for that which conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You can, re you can relax now. God is in control. But more than that, verse 21, this is the fulfillment of all these things. What Hannah was praying for, there's a king coming. What Psalm 130 said, there is someone coming that will redeem from iniquities. There is someone coming who will have abundant redemption. And here it is in verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, or Jesus. Why? Because he's going to improve your standard of living. He's going to give you the house of your dreams. He's going to give you the job you've always wanted. He's going to make all your wildest dreams come true. No, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word, forever settled, written before, Lord, even creation. And Lord, we've seen it unfold, and we're seeing it unfold. And Lord, we thank you that it's unfolded in our lives. You've redeemed us if anyone here has not been redeemed, today would be their day to know you personally. Yeshua, Jesus, the anointed, the Messiah, sins forgiven. Lord, I pray that you would anoint this message, this time in your word. May we see Jesus and may we see you high and lifted up. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The one and only time I ever went on a hot air balloon ride you didn't expect to hear that today, right? It was in my prior career and vocation, and um, before I got in the ministry, you know, I worked in high tech, and we, we had a uh, team outing. It was also a thank you for contributions to the company. Uh, aside from the fact that most of us didn't really feel like driving all the way to Pennsylvania for this gift and thank you, um, I did get a little perspective that day. We had to get up really early before the sun came up, well before the sun came up, to get to the site where the balloon was going to take off. We were going to get in the baskets, and there was actually three of them. And the sky, you know, when before the sun rises, before you can see the sun, the sky was changing. You know, the sun is not visible, but the sky was changing from, first it goes from black to like a midnight blue. And then it goes from midnight blue to kind of like this pale, bluish gray. And then all of a sudden other colors start to pop out, right? As the different rays of light come in at different angles, it starts to change. The signs were there, 
The evidence of a dawning sun was in the sky. The evidence was there. The rays of the sun were now being sent out in all different directions. But the sun was still not visible. Matter of fact, I need to get through that real quick here. That's next week. Anyway, back to here. So the sun was uh, the sun was moving out in all different directions, and but the sun was still not. You couldn't see the sun yet. You just saw the sky changing. And as we got in the balloons, and it was really early, and everybody's put coffee in themselves. Not too much coffee. There are no bathrooms up in hot air balloons. So uh, <laughs> if you drink too much coffee, you really have a problem up in a hot air balloon early in the morning. We. We try not to complain. This is a gift. This is a thank you. All this good stuff, you know. So, but as we're going up in the uh, in these hot air balloons, the sun is still hidden from view. Even as we lift it up, there was light available, but you still couldn't see the sun. And we begin begin to lift up above the tree line and above the hills. And as soon as we got a little bit higher, we could see the sun breaking out over these Pennsylvania hills. Those of you from Pennsylvania, you got the Poconos up there, and so they we, they're in the distance. And we could see the sun start to pop up, but only because we were a little higher up, 100 feet, a couple hundred feet. We could see it well before anybody else in that Pennsylvania town could see it because of our vantage point. God's always had a vantage point that we don't have, amen? Where he, he, he says, this is coming. You can't see it, but this is what's dawning. Israel, and for that matter, the world, was waiting for the dawning of the S-O-N. The world was waiting for the dawning of God's Son. Now, certainly not everybody was waiting for this, but a few were. A few were above the tree line, so to speak. Now, everyone needed the arrival of God's Son. Everyone needed the arrival of hope, but not everyone knew what God was doing what God had been foretelling, what God had been working on. But the wait, it had been long. It had been about 4,000 years since creation. 4,000 years since the genealogy that began with Adam. Now, remember that the genealogy in Matthew picks it up with Abraham, does not start with Adam. Luke's genealogy actually goes all the way back to Adam. But the wait had been long, about 4,000 years since Adam and Eve fell in the garden of course, Jesus would run rise in a garden. Everything in the Bible is tied together. There's always these pictures that are foretelling what's going to take place. But 4,000 years from perfection and paradise, don't you sometimes wish it was still like that? 4,000 years from perfection and paradise to ultimately death. And God said that death would now call upon man. But the Lord had promised right there at the beginning, right after Adam and Eve said, He had promised that through a woman would come a Messiah. One who would crush the head of Satan, crush the work of Satan. And even though Satan loved the day that Jesus went to the cross, that day his head got crushed, and it was confirmed in the resurrection three days later. But now Eve, she thought one of her sons might be the Messiah. She really thought, this is going to happen pretty quick, that one of my sons... Abel was a just man, but then Cain killed him, right? So she thought one of her sons might be the Messiah, but it wasn't. It would come through her line, but not directly. It wasn't going to be one of her direct sons. 
a man was coming, but only God knew how it was going to be brought about. Only God could see above, not only the tree line, but above the whole earth. Now, the darkness, the darkness became so great on the earth that God flooded the entire world. It became so dark, so evil. You think, there's never been a more evil time than the time we're living. No, no, there's been more, more evil times than right now. Now, it will become a day by the time... Jesus returns, the world will be more evil than it's ever been. But there's already been times that it's been way worse than now. And it was such when the world had become so evil and so full of sin that God flooded the entire world. But he preserved one man named Noah and his three sons, his wife. And the world then from them was repopulated all over again. His family comes off the ark. world's repopulated. But the darkness was still really heavy on the earth. Even after the flood, you'd say, well, surely after God wipes out all the evil, surely everyone's going to worship God now and follow God now. And everyone's going, Noah's going to be kind of the priest of the new, uh, the new work of God. Everyone's going to, no. Within no time at all, Noah's direct descendants would reject the God that saved and preserved them. They would reject the God of their father and forefather. If some of you are praying for kids in your family, or prodigals, or your grandkids, you're not alone. Noah would have been like, what in the world? Literally the world. He's a, the whole world was flooded, and his own descendants turned right back to darkness. Nations would rise. False religions would rise. Did you know that Noah was still alive? You ever heard of Nimrod in the Bible? Noah was alive when Nimrod comes on the scene. Nimrod is a precursor to the coming Antichrist. Nimrod galvanized the whole world against God. And Noah was still alive. So in other words, they had Noah to say, this is what happens when you sin. The whole world, Nimrod said, no, 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 don't listen to him. He might be my grandfather, great-grandfather, whatever, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. But the coming of the sun was still already underway because God had promised it that the coming of the sun was still coming. The sun will rise tomorrow, not a, not a thing you and I can do about it, amen? You and I may not be alive tomorrow, but the sun will still rise tomorrow. And the S-O-N was going to rise no matter what Nimrod or anybody else was going to do. God's plan was already underway. The tracks were set. And a man chosen by the will and sovereignty of God was called out of a city called Ur, about 1800 B.C. His name was Abram. You heard of him? 1800 B.C. God changes his name later to Abraham after he goes through a series of tests of his faith. And he's called a patriarch one of the fathers, one of the forefathers of the faith, but uh, he's the patriarch of the specific nation that God created. Israel never existed before until God calls Abraham. Israel was not a nation. God says, with this man, I'm going to make a nation, a small nation that will be a light. And Abraham, he's the first one mentioned in Matthew, Matthew's genealogy. Did you see that? Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham, 
Abraham's the first one mentioned in the genealogy. Now, both Joseph and Mary, they're direct descendants of Abraham, right? They're both Jewish from the line of Abraham. And not only that, they're from Abraham's, uh, would be one of his descendants, Judah, right? One of his grandchildren, Judah. So they're direct descendants of the tribe of Judah. But going back, when Abraham is born, it's only been about 200 years. I want to just kind of walk you through what's happening here. You've got Noah, right? Then comes Abraham. Now, not a direct, uh, Noah is not the son, I mean, Abraham is not the son of Noah, but he comes from the same lineage because Noah is the father of all of us. And then Abraham in, the, in that time period. But when Abraham's born, uh, it's only been, I don't know if you knew this, uh, when you read the Bible, these things may not be aware to you unless, unless you study kind of how the lineage goes and how the years go. But when Abraham's born, it's only been about 200 years since the world was flooded. About the age of America, Abraham is born, and it's only been about 200 years since the world was flooded. Noah's life actually overlaps Abraham's life. In other words, when Abraham's born, Noah's still alive. Noah's the last of the super long lifespans, which are going to return in the millennium reign of Christ. People are going to return to these long lifespans. No one knows how this works. God hasn't told us yet, and he really doesn't owe us an explanation. But prior to the flood, people lived into the 900s. After the flood, Noah lives to be 950, and the lifespans taper off. You know, Shem, 600 years, and they descend down all the time. You get to Moses, 120 years. We think that's a long time, but it wasn't a long time with the earlier time periods. So Noah's life overlaps. Noah's still alive when Abraham is born. Noah's son, Shem, outlives Abraham. Noah's son, Shem, where we get the word Semitic, or Semitism, it all goes back to Shem. Shem is where the root of, you hear the word anti-Semitic. Uh, Jewish people are not the only Semitic people. For example, the Far East is a Semitic lineage, right? So the descendants of Shem are Semitic people, but Shem is still alive when Abraham is born, and he is alive when Abraham dies. Shem outlives Abraham. Abraham was able to go and speak directly to Shem, Noah's son. See, uh, Shem and Noah, they were witnesses of God's grace. Even through the world getting darker and darker and darker, the world still had a witness. And then Abraham is, in essence, he's called to take the mantle of Noah. Abraham is called to take the mantle. The Bible speaks of the forefathers. Noah's one, but so is Abraham. He takes, if, if you will, the mantle, but he ushers in this new chapter of God's unfolding plan. Noah was part of this big chapter. Now Abraham, the baton essentially gets passed to Abraham, and a new chapter, they're sometimes called dispensations, opens up in God's unfolding plan. So as Abraham, he's guided by the Lord. Abraham then enters this land called Canaan. He comes from Ur, which is modern-day Iraq, and he leaves Iraq, wasn't Iraq then, but again, Ur, 
Babylonian, the Chaldeans were there. He comes from that part of the crescent part of the world there and over into Canaan, which is modern-day Israel today. God leads him there into the land of Canaan. Remember, Shem is still alive, but the Canaanite nations are now full of adultery, full of immorality, child sacrifice, horrific you know, sexual practices. All, I mean, every kind of thing you could think of, that was Canaan. And Abraham's like, and that's where I got to go live? No, not, he, he chose parts of the uh, area which were a little away from that. His, son, his uh, nephew Lot wanted to be close to all that. But he's brought into this area of the world that's just full of rebellion. And again, it's only been a couple hundred years since the flood of the whole world for those very type things. But with this man Abraham, the world continues deep into the night. The darkness is getting darker, but the dawn is getting closer. You know? I, I was telling some guys the other day, we, we, we are closer right now. Every, from the time this service started, you're all closer to meeting God face-to-face -face than you've ever been at any point in your life. When this service ends, you'll be closer to meeting God than you've ever been at any point in your life. And so will the whole world. The sand will never go back up the hourglass. It only will come down through the hourglass. And the sand was going through the hourglass, but it was a good thing because the dawning of the sun was still on the way, no matter how dark the world was. And if the darkness persists, getting to the sunrise sometimes seems to take forever. That's why the psalmist says, those who wait for the morning, it seems like the morning will never come, right? Some things in your life, you feel like the morning might never come. But God starts to build this brand new nation from Abraham. And just as Abraham's descendants begin to multiply, remember, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has Joseph and the 12 sons. The 12 sons were so nice, well, 11 of them, were so nice that they sold their brother into slavery, right? By the way, they couldn't thwart God's plan. They thought they'd never see him again. In fact, they would be bowing down to him. But God had told Abraham that that was going to happen. He said, your descendants are going to go 400 years into bondage, about 400 years into bondage. And sure enough, they did. They go down into Egypt for about 400 years, just as God told Abraham would take place. And again, this whole, all, we're still writing Abraham, Noah, then Abraham, because we're going to pick up the genealogy and drink, bring it all the way to Jesus. God, it's like the, the dominoes are set up, and it, there they go. The end of 400 years, God raises up a man who's not from the tribe of Judah. He's not listed in the lineage. He's not listed in Matthew's lineage because Moses is from the tribe of Levi. He has a brother named Aaron, and the Levitical priesthood will come from Aaron. But Moses is a type of Christ. Not a Christ, it's a type of Christ. It foreshadows, types, right? Everyone knows what that means? It's a picture of what's to come. Just like the rising of the sun is a picture of the, and Malachi it tells us it's a picture of the rising of the S-O-N. Right? It dispels the darkness. Just a picture. But Moses, he's not from the tribe of Judah that Matthew outlines in the lineage, but Moses is a forerunner to the Messiah in this way. Moses is raised up as a deliverer 
from bondage. So he's a picture. Moses himself, it's recorded in the book of Acts. When Peter preaches about Moses, he says, Moses himself said, God will raise up a man just like me, and him you'll actually hear. That always gives me comfort as a pastor, because Moses said, him you'll actually listen to. <laughs> if you wouldn't listen to Moses, you sure won't listen to me. But, you know, Moses had a lot of people that heard his messages in one ear and out the other, and matter of fact, they actually opposed him, wanted to stone him, all that stuff. But he said, by the way, they wanted to do all that to Jesus, too. They opposed Jesus, they wanted to stone him, they didn't listen to him. He said, him who had ears, let him hear. But Moses was a forerunner. He was a type. Moses was also a shepherd. Does that sound familiar? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He was called to deliver the people, to shepherd the people. And like Jesus, Moses, when he was a baby, the king of the largest empire tried to kill baby Moses. When Jesus was born, the king of the empire tried to kill baby Jesus. These are all foreshadows, foreshadowing what was to come. When Moses has grown up, he is first rejected by his own people. When Jesus grows up, he's rejected by his own people. He comes to them the first time, they don't want to listen. He comes to them the second time, and he takes over. Fast forward about 500 years after Moses. About 500 years later, and this Young shepherd appears. Another shepherd, by the way. Odd coincidence, huh? These shepherds keep appearing. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Jesus is a shepherd. 500 years, and this young shepherd boy is anointed. There's that word anointed again. Anointed meant they poured oil. They did it for kings. They did it for priests. They did it for prophets. Most people, well, all people, he only had one of those titles until Jesus wears them all, right? But it's a foreshadowing. David is anointed to become Israel's second king. Now, when he's anointed, Saul's still in power, but Saul has rebelled and resisted God, and God has chosen to step out. Saul was not from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin. God was doing a reroute because the line had to come through Judah all the way back to Abraham. But the royal line of Christ really starts with David. David is where the royal line begins. And David descends again back to Abraham. Abraham, can you can draw a line straight through to David, through the tribe of Judah. Moses is up there in a different color scheme because he's a forerunner, but he's not in the lineage. But David is. And David takes out more than a few Goliaths, both literally and metaphorically, in his lifetime. David is a giant slayer, and Jesus is a giant slayer. Amen? David takes out a lot of hindrances in Israel's kingdom. Under David, Israel finally begins to break the yoke of some of their fiercest enemies, of some of the most pains in their side. Enemies from the foundation of time, uh, David is the one that lays the foundation of peace and prosperity for the nation-state of Israel. David lays that foundation. They had not had a good run up until David. It was mostly... You know, if you look at American history, uh, today's generation is so used to um, kind of the way things are. 
I got my car, I got my microwave TV, microwave TV, what a microwave oven. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's coming, don't worry. You know, it, you'll just put it all in the same place. You know, you, you won't have to worry about uh, everything will be in the same technology. I'll have my, your phone will be a microwave, don't worry. Uh, eventually, you won't have to work or think. Uh, Alexa will do it for you and all that kind of stuff. But, but in, in American history, people that have gone before us say, hello. We were there with the Revolutionary War. It was rough. We were there with times of the plague. It was rough. We were there in the pioneer times. It was rough. We were in slavery, and it was horrible, right? We were in the Civil War. We were in World War I, the Depression, World War II. So a lot of things that today's generation just doesn't even relate to. Well, Israel had a, a history worse than all of that. Two, 200 years our nation, but imagine slavery for 400 years. So David comes along, he finally lays this foundation of peace and prosperity that was then carried forward under his son Solomon, the wisest man intellectually to ever live. And King David, he points the nation and he points the world, because David was known all over the world, so was Solomon. He points the nation and the world to worship of the true and living God. So the nations now know Israel really is called to this. And it's with David that Matthew begins this second group of 14 generations. The second 14 generations begin with David. And it's a painful path for David's descendants. After David leaves, it's back to hard times again. After David and Solomon, his son, the nation of Israel splits into two countries. Imagine our country splitting into two nations. Say, well, that's not hard to imagine. It looks like it's kind of Facebook replicates this every day, right? You know, it looks like two different countries, right? Well, Israel did. It broke the ten tribes of the north, became the northern kingdom. Benjamin and Judah became the southern kingdom. And it split. And in a steady progression there's a turning of Israel as a nation away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to the pagan nations and to the Baals and to the Molechs and all of the idols of the land, the very same idols that Abraham came in and rejected, they went back to. And ultimately, the ten tribes of the north, they're carried away by the Assyrian Empire. And the northern kingdom is completely destroyed. Judah and the southern kingdom, they survive for a while, much longer than the northern kingdom. They have some good kings, they have some righteous kings, they have some bad kings, but eventually they follow the same direction as the northern kingdom, and they're carried away into captivity. And the captivity is mentioned here in verse 17, from David until the captivity in Babylon. So this captivity in Babylon becomes another marker and as Matthew outlines, from David to Bab the Babylonian captivity is the second leg of these, 14, these three sets of 14 generations. The Babylonian captivity, it lasts 70 years. And then to the coming of Jesus, that 70 years is just in that third set of 14. But to the coming of Jesus, the last 14 generations is about another 500 years. So another 500 years from David to Jesus' earthly father, not his biological father, but
but his earthly father. He has no biological father, the Holy Spirit. But to his earthly father, Joseph, is about another 500 years. Uh, the last 400 of those 500 years are called the silent years. You ever heard of that? The silent years. Doesn't mean that God wasn't speaking to his people. He was, but no scripture was penned in those 400 years. No scripture was given to prophets that was codified as the word of God. God was still speaking. People were still being raised up. People were still looking to the Christ, but there was no scripture given in those last 400 years, and so that's why it's referred to as the silent years, the last 400 of that 500 between David and Joseph, roughly 500. Again, these are all approximates. But God, of course, was still speaking. But the next scripture to come would be the word made flesh. The next scripture to come was manna to come down in the form of Jesus. And that's where we pick it up with Jesus' earthly father here, who's been given this news that his betrothed wife will soon give birth by the Holy Spirit to the Messiah. I mean, Joseph's heard of this coming Messiah. He's heard of this coming king. He's heard of this coming deliverer that's greater than Moses. But the shock of a little carpenter in Galilee to say, and by the way, your betrothed wife is going to bring him in. What? Shouldn't that come in a palace? Shouldn't that be someone of royalty? Well, Joseph, you are a direct descendant of David. Well, that's true. I've never been able to get any value out of that, right? <laughs> we're living on rations here. You know, We're not living like David and Solomon lived in any way, shape, or form. So those generations, 500 years, they were no longer royalty. They were descendants, but nobody was really treating them like royalty. But he says, uh, you're going to have a son, and here's what I want you to name him. His name means not only he'll save his people from sin, but his name also means Emmanuel, which means God with us. Your son is God. Now, all during the years of Abraham to Joseph, Abraham to Joseph, not Noah, but Abraham to Joseph, that's about 2,000 years there, about 2,000 years. Most of that time was a time of groaning. And there were some isolated periods of peace, but there were long periods of slavery, long periods of famine, long periods of wars, judgment, oppression. But when the word becomes flesh, God's telling Joseph, your son is going to be the one chain breaker of all of that stuff, all of it. This gives you a little, little view of the timeline. If you're just a, a visual person, you can kind of look at, you know, from Abraham here all the way to Jesus, and you can see just the, the slavery period in green, 400 years. But all those other checkpoints in between, if we were to show the times of peace and prosperity, they're little slivers. It's a kind of a metaphor for life. If you're looking for life to always be like Disney World, you're looking in the wrong place heaven, there'll be no more pain, suffering. This world, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Don't try and avoid it. Have God help you go through it. You can't avoid it anyway. Have God help you go through it. But Jesus is coming. At this point, he, he's just being told. Now, already, when Joseph gets the news, Mary's already with child. 
as Joseph was ready to kind of like put her away. That, so the, the word made flesh is already, the sun's just about to come over the horizon after all that time of darkness. Um, even as Joseph is hearing the angel's announcement, uh, the descendants of Abraham, even as Joseph is getting this message, if you look at this timeline, you understand so much of it was judgment, war, captivity, slavery, you name it, bad times, a little bit of good times with David and Solomon and a few of kings here, but most of it was rough. Most of it was lost. Most of it was boring. Most of it was painful. But even as Joseph is hearing this announcement from the, the angel, they're right now under the fist and the grip of the Roman Empire. Even right there. That's why soon Caesar Augustus will say, everybody go to your place. Whatever Caesar says. Even then, the Jewish people are under the iron fist of the Roman Empire. So, uh, as was the norm, fear and oppression were all around. That's why the angels will say, fear not. Fear and oppression was the norm. No king, not even King David, even though he was the greatest king. Solomon was the richest king. David was the greatest king. But no king had ever brought lasting peace. And no king could actually put peace in someone's heart. You know, if we have the best American economy, do you notice people will still struggle with all kinds of mental health issues, relationship issues, drug issues? You know that no matter what, people will still struggle? You can't give peace. Well, Jesus can. But people can. No king had ever been able to create lasting peace. No king could ever heal a heart. No king had ever been able to bring healing. And no king could bring forgiveness of iniquity. Various men had been used by God. Various prophets had been, had been sent, had spoken for God. They had pointed people to God. But the hope the angels spoke to Joseph about, he says, this son is God. He's not telling about God. This son is God. And some, like Hannah, long before, they looked forward to the Messiah. They looked forward to the Messiah. And then King David, he, he even prophesied in the Psalms, he spoke of a king far greater than him that sat on a throne above his throne. David said this. He spoke of it, an eternal throne, an everlasting throne. And throughout the generations of Israel's history, the prophets like Moses and Isaiah and Zechariah and others, they pointed to a Messiah and a deliverer that the Bible said he would arrive as a light that breaks forth and expels the darkness as a savior, and as a healer, not just for Israel, but a healer for the nations, plural. So at the very time of Joseph and Mary, 2,000 years ago, living there as relatively poor residents of Galilee. These were not your middle class. They were, Mary and Joseph were below middle class. They were at Dollar Tree, <laughs> not at Neiman Marcus, right? And by the way, when you get to know Jesus, you get to know people upon all strata. If all your friends look exactly like you, that's not a good thing. But Jesus, his parents, his earthly parents, there they are, 
relatively poor residents there in Galilee. And families, as they had done for centuries, they would caravan and take pilgrimages up to Jerusalem. Now, if you like maps and geography like me, one of the things I noticed even first time I read the Bible, I like, hold on a second. Galilee is north. That would be going down to Jerusalem. You ever read that in the Bible and you're like, hold on, that's south. That can't be up. That would be down. But the Bible's always right. We're always wrong, right? <laughs> Jerusalem sat up, up. So you would go up to Jerusalem. You know, like the Dead Sea, if you go down to the Dead Sea, you're dropping, it's the lowest point on earth, way below sea level. You go up to Jerusalem out of the Dead Sea uh, in the valley down where Jericho is. You go up, and those of you going to Israel, you'll, you'll see all this for yourself. And Jerusalem sits up on a hill, and boy, when the sun hits it, uh, late afternoon, it's just unbelievable. That's why it's called the Golden City, because all that sandstone, Jerusalem stone, it's white cream, and when the sun hits it, it lights up. And God did all that. It sits up. But they would pilgrimage. They would take these caravans up, no matter where they were coming from, whether they are coming from Bethlehem, whether they are coming from way down the south, Eliot, whether they are coming from the northern parts, all the way up in Galilee, which is up near the north, near, near Hezbollah, what we refer to now as the Golan Heights area. All of that area, they would come from all different directions, over in uh, what would be modern-day Jordan, down in Egypt, everywhere where there was a remnant of Jewish people, they would come to Jerusalem for the feasts, plural, because there was these feasts throughout the year, of course, Passover, Rosh Hashanah, these different feasts, and they would come and they would caravan up to Jerusalem and ultimately to the temple. Now, this is Jerusalem today where the Dome of the Rock sits, is where the temple was, is the last vestige of even Solomon's, or not even Solomon's, it's actually Herod's temple, the western walls to the left there, but you can't see it down below the other part of the mosque, because you have the Dome of the Rock and then you have other mosques to the left of it, but, um, but still Jerusalem sits up on a hill. And so they would caravan up, and as they went all the way to Jerusalem, they would sing, and Psalm 130 is one of the ones that they would sing. And so let me reread again. We read it, just so you're kind of seeing again in context. Imagine they're singing these words, singing them. they got tambourines. They're getting their worship on, moving, right? They're going up to Jerusalem, and I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And they're singing those words as they're going up the hill. Not just one hill, because Jerusalem, you come at it from the Mediterranean side, but up Mediterranean sea level, so you know you're going up, right? Dead Sea, lower than sea level. So you're going up to Jerusalem, and they're singing these song of ascents, these psalms, which means songs. And little did they know, the, at this point in time, while Joseph and Mary are now pondering, what in the world do we do? We got a problem. What are we going to do? Caesar hasn't given his uh, you know, decree yet, but they're still wondering. As that's happening, anyone that's taken a pilgrim to Jerusalem, they're singing their songs of ascents, and little do they know that the hope for them, the hope for their sins, the hope for their nation was at the doorsteps of history right now. They had no clue that Jesus was right at the door. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible 
that some of those that were taking that trek to Jerusalem, even if they were the most faithful ones that went year after year, but is it possible that some of them were singing and proclaiming the very words of hope, and yet they had a misplaced hope? Is it possible that some of them knew the right words to sing, but didn't have their hope placed in the right place? Yes, it's not only possible, it was generally the case. Not only possible, but most people were singing of something they had no understanding or even a real appreciation for. That's why the testimony of Simeon and Anna, we can't go there, but uh, in um, Luke chapter 2, that's why their testimony is so pivotal because they were waiting for the Messiah. They understood the Daniel timeline even. They knew it was close. Lamentation 3.26 says it is good that one should uh, hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Uh, Simeon and Anna, they were waiting expectantly, according to the Daniel prophecies from a timeline perspective. They had a genuine hope that the Savior of their souls and of the whole world was really nearby, near to them by the Spirit of God and being revealed in the world. But many, and in fact most who would sing Psalm 130, they were not looking for the hope of their souls. Most people singing this were not looking for the hope of their souls. They were not looking for the Lamb of God in most cases. They were not looking for the Redeemer of their sins. They were not looking for Emmanuel. But rather, so many were hoping for a revived Jewish kingdom. They wanted Jerusalem to be like New York City again. Paris, Rome, in their day Rome. Just kind of using some cities in our time here. But, uh, but they wanted to put Rome in their place. Put Rome underfoot. That, that they wanted to see silver again be just as abundant as it was in the days of Solomon when it says that silver was like dust. Can you imagine? Like iPhones were like, I got 20. How many do you want? You know, that kind of thing, right? Many were hoping for a better world, a better life, a better job. They certainly had hopes and dreams. They saw the need for a king or a deliverer that could revive the glory of Israel, that could improve their lives in the process. This is what political seasons are always about. Someone that can improve your life. If you've lived long enough, you know that they never can keep those promises, right? But typically what they were looking for was not the revival and renewal of their souls. It was a revival of the glory of the nation. And you see, we see the same things, right? Can be said today, um, I think you could find people singing about the right hope and yet have their hopes misplaced. I remember being down in Williamsburg a couple of years ago, and there's a whole crowd of people, and, and uh, you know, I could tell by some of what they were wearing that some of them didn't believe in the same Lord and Savior I believe in. But boy, when the Christmas carols came on, they're all singing about, I'm like, do you not know what you're singing? Long as the curse, right? <laughs> so these are, these are things. Uh, people could sing about a, a redeemer and have no personal desire to be redeemed. People can sing about a savior that can cleanse from all iniquity and yet have no personal desire to be cleansed whatsoever. They're just religious words. People will, tons of people will sing Silent Night, all that kind of stuff, Heart Herald Angels sing, and they have no desire for Jesus at all. We see the same. 
People will sing with festive enthusiasm, right? Let every heart prepare him room. Is it just words or is it something that's saying, no, no, I'm actually looking to prepare room for Jesus. Yet there's no room. They've never been humbled. They've never asked themselves for Jesus to come in or asked Jesus to come in and be their Savior and Lord. Thousands will sing, oh, come, let us adore him all across the country. Coast to coast, people will sing at church services. They'll go to some Christmas special. Oh, come, let us adore him. But the more truthful line for our country would be, oh, come, let us ignore him. That would be a more accurate rendering of where we're really at. See, it's impossible to adore Christ until we first see the need for Christ. You can't really adore him until you say, I need atonement. I need to be forgiven. I need the Savior. You can't adore him until you say, have mercy upon me, right? Then the gratitude, then the worship, then the surrender. It follows. Once the light of salvation has dawned in our heart, once it has risen in our hearts and that darkness is expelled, then we really do adore Jesus. Amen. And even after we adore him, we struggle to adore him, right? Because the flesh is still there and that's a whole other study. But Ephesians 2.12 expresses the change that takes place when we go from singing about Jesus to being in Jesus. From realizing our hopeless condition to having the hope of eternity. Ephesians 2.12, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world but now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He said, now you understand what God was doing. Now you appreciate it. Jesus, hey, he already came the first time. All the promises, all the prophecies, everything the patriarchs said would come has come to pass. Joseph saw it. Mary saw it. Shepherd saw it. The wise men saw it. Anna saw it. Simeon saw it. The light of the sun dawned in the darkness and in Matthew 4.16, here it is. It says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region, the shadow of death, light has dawned. That's when you adore Jesus. You say, I realize he's my hope. I'm not just singing these words. These words are in my heart. If you've been born again, Jesus has already come a first time for you personally. He's come into your heart. He's come personally for each of us, one-on-one. -on -one. He's dawned in your heart, and every day is a new day. Every day is a day to worship the Lord. You don't wait for the rising of the sun to do your thing. You now live your remaining days to adore him, not ignore him. Amen. You live the remaining your, your days to adore him, not ignore him, and to glorify his name and to point others to him. But do you know what? He's coming again. Did you know that? He's coming again. He's just as much coming now as he was coming the first time. And it may be even closer to us now than it was to Joseph. We have no idea. We have no idea. Only God knows. And when he does come, are you ready? Is the presence of the Holy Spirit filling you with joy about his return? Romans 8.25 says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. The way we persevere is we have hope we know Jesus is coming. I don't know a lot of things. I don't know how this day is going to wind down 
between now and midnight. I don't know what's going to happen around the world between now and midnight, but I know this, Jesus is closer to coming back. The hope that Moses, Abraham, Joseph, did, the hope they hoped for, we have living in us, and now we will know is coming to us. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have the truth, the living hope of Jesus. Lord, we can look back, and I, and I pray that you've used this text, even these verses, even this genealogy to open eyes and to soften our hearts that we would say, Lord, we need you. We need to cry out for your mercy that we may come to that place of gratitude and adoration. And before we, we're going to have Lord's Supper in just a minute, before we take the Lord's Supper, I just with your heads are bowed, I just want to ask if there's anyone here. This is not the kind of study I normally do. For those of you that have read the Bible, as I was putting this together, it dawned on me after I put it together. I'm like, the message I preach today is much like messages that Stephen, Paul, they would just tell the whole story. Basically what I did is I went from Noah to Jesus, and I just told you, and I left out a lot of facts just like they would, but I told you the major stuff. And then they counted on the Holy Spirit to take all that story and drop in your heart the conviction of need. And I pray that God's done that.